This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, who has had no influence on the content or faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. This session will be focusing on the co-occurrence of obesity and diabetes and how you can help patients reduce their body weight. We will begin with a quick overview of recent data and then join our guest speaker, Professor Ronald Goldenberg, to hear his advice on optimizing clinical practice. If you're already familiar with recent studies, do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview. Obesity and type 2 diabetes are two closely linked metabolic disorders. A 2014 report by Public Health England found that people with obesity are five times more likely to develop diabetes, with an overall prevalence of 12.4% among people whose BMI is above 30 kg per meter squared. Weight clearly plays a factor in the development of diabetes, but is weight loss sufficient to resolve diabetes? The immediate answer is yes, but. So yes, studies of gastric bypass surgery have demonstrated that alongside rapid normalisation of body weight, bariatric surgery is associated with rapid normalisation of blood glucose levels, which creates a state of diabetes remission. Now, similar effects have also been seen with rapid weight loss without surgery, but there are three ways to interpret this trend, which was stated by Dr. Rachel Batterham in a 2016 report titled Mechanisms of Diabetes Improvement Following Bariatric or Metabolic Surgery. It could be that weight loss plays a role in diabetes remission or that the presence of diabetes adversely affects weight loss, but it could also be that common mechanistic factors drive both diabetes remission and weight loss. The topic also becomes more complicated when comparing lifestyle interventions with bariatric surgery. For example, the 2016 Crossroads trial compared Ruan-Y gastric bypass to intensive lifestyle and medical intervention. One year after both interventions, diabetes remission was achieved by 60% of patients that received gastric bypass, but only 5.9% of those on lifestyle intervention. However, more recent approaches have demonstrated success. The DIRECT trial, for example, was an open-label control trial that evaluated a structured lifestyle program against best practice care for obese patients, here defined as a BMI between 27 and 45, the mean BMI of the participant group being 35 and 34 respectively. The trial intervention consisted of withdrawal of antihypoglycemic agents, a total diet replacement to 825 to 853 calories per day for 12 to 20 weeks, stepped food reintroduction for 2 to 8 weeks, and then structured support for weight loss maintenance. This support included physical activity strategies to raise physical activity to 15,000 steps a day. Although the trial found that no increase in physical activity occurred in either group between baseline and 12 months, the intervention group saw significantly higher weight loss and remission of diabetes. At 24 months, 11% of intervention participants achieved a weight loss of at least 15 kilograms compared to 2% in the control group, while 36% of intervention participants have remission of diabetes compared to 3% of the control group. In a post hoc analysis of the whole study population, 64% of participants who maintained at least 10 kilograms of weight loss experienced remission of diabetes. The RETUNE trial aims to evaluate if a similar structured approach would be effective for patients who are overweight but not obese. In order to understand the relationship between diabetes and body weight, it's important to understand the factors that lead to obesity. 
Although weight gain is caused by an imbalance between energy intake and output, there are a wide range of underlying genetic and hormonal factors that influence the risk of individuals becoming obese. This was illustrated by Professor Sadaf Faruqi, who recently won the ADA 2019 Outstanding Scientific Achievement Award for her work in this field. She demonstrated that genetic differences as small as a single gene deficiency can have pronounced effects on taste and thereby dietary preferences. In her 2016 study, which compared lean and obese controls to obese individuals with a deficiency in melanocortin 4 receptor, or MC4R, the participants were offered a choice of three savoury meals and three desserts, with varying fat and sucrose content respectively, but no difference in appearance, texture or taste. After being provided a 15 gram taster of each option, participants were asked to rate their liking or disliking of each option, and then were allowed to eat freely from the three options. The study found that those with the MC4R deficiency consumed significantly more of the high-fat meal than controls, but paradoxically consumed significantly less of the high-sucrose desserts than both lean and obese control groups. Professor Faruqi was quoted saying, Our work shows that even if you tightly control the appearance and taste of food, our brains can detect the nutrient content. In her award lecture at ADA, she nicely summed up the findings of her work and the need to tackle the stigma around obesity when she said, Thin people are thin because they lack the genetic variants associated with obesity and not because they are morally superior. Similarly, recent work examining the effects of bariatric surgery indicates that the pronounced weight loss associated with gastric bypass is due to changes in the hormonal regulation of appetite rather than altered digestion and absorption alone. Studies have observed elevated plasma concentrations of GLP-1, OXM and PPY in those with a RUON-Y gastric bypass. A recent randomised controlled trial by Professor Tricia Tan and colleagues published in Diabetes Care aimed to mimic this effect through infusion with these hormones, and the researchers found that participants demonstrated significant weight loss after four weeks of continuous infusion during waking hours, as compared to a control group that received saline. So with all of this in mind, how do we help patients with both diabetes and obesity achieve sustained weight loss? Joining us this week is Professor Ronald Goldenberg to discuss his clinical experience in diabetes management. For my first question, considering the strong association between obesity and diabetes, what should clinicians consider when discussing weight loss in comorbid patients? Uh, the important thing for clinicians to understand when uh, counseling uh, patients about uh, weight loss with coinciding type 2 diabetes and other comorbidities is that uh, only a modest weight loss of even 5 to 10% of body weight uh, will lead to dramatic uh, improvements, uh, improvements in glycemic control, uh, improvements in blood pressure, and lipids uh, can also improve. Uh, in fact, even a one kilogram weight loss can be associated with about a 0.1% uh, reduction uh, in A1C. And so because of the modest weight loss benefits, uh, a reasonable weight loss goal uh, for our patients would be about two to four kilograms per month. Uh, in some patients that are more refractory to weight loss, um, even a slower weight loss might be reasonable. And even in uh, some other patients, sometimes preventing weight gain over time is an appropriate uh, goal. Um, and of course, the most successful weight loss uh, attempts uh, should include a dietary plan, uh, preferably one that's evidence-based and uh, 
nutritionally adequate, uh, an increase in physical activity, and behavioral therapy is also uh, important. Uh, finally, some patients may benefit from pharmacotherapy, uh, perhaps with antihyperglycemic agents uh, uh, and or uh, anti-obesity agents, and uh, sometimes we'll refer patients for bariatric surgery as well. Thank you, Dr. Goldenberg. Do you have any general advice on how to approach this topic with your patients? Uh, so when advising uh, patients uh, about uh, weight loss, um, uh, many of us uh, will use what we call the five A's framework uh, to encourage uh, behavior change. Uh, the first A is ask, uh, which means uh, uh, try to get permission to discuss uh, weight loss attempts with your patient. Uh, the second A is for assess, uh, uh, meaning we should assess uh, obesity-related risks and the potential causes of weight gain in that patient. Uh, then we can advise, which is the third A, and we would advise on uh, the risks of obesity and discuss the various uh, uh, benefits and uh, uh, options that are available. Uh, the fourth A would be to agree with the patient on uh, a realistic uh, weight loss expectation and an appropriate weight loss plan for that individual. And the final A, we uh, call assist, which means we would assist that individual in uh, addressing all the drivers and barriers that are uh, related to weight issues. Um, we should offer uh, education around weight management and provide various resources. Uh, some clinicians uh, should refer to an appropriate provider. And of course, uh, part of the assistance process is to arrange appropriate follow-up. For my next question, are there specific individual factors that should influence the choice of weight loss strategy? Uh, in any weight loss intervention, it's uh, appropriate uh, that the uh, choice of therapy is individualized according to the uh, patient. Uh, there are many diets out there. The, probably the most appropriate dietary intervention would be the one that the patient is willing to follow uh, long term. Um, as far as exercise intervention, uh, patients should choose activities that they enjoy and that they're willing to uh, carry out on a long-term basis. Uh, and of course, uh, part of the individualization approach would be a cho choosing appropriate uh, uh, pharmacotherapy. And in type 2 diabetes, often it means uh, uh, choosing uh, agents that are associated with uh, weight loss, whether it be an antihyperglycemic agent or an anti-obesity Agent. At the end of the day, uh, uh, patients have to build, feel comfortable with their uh, weight loss strategy and uh, they need to kind of buy into what is recommended, otherwise you're uh, setting up for failure. A number of specific diets have been studied in trials, including very low-calorie diets, low-carbohydrate diets and intermittent fasting regimes. In your experience, are any of these effective? And if so, how would you recommend helping patients select and implement such a diet? Uh, my feeling is that uh, all dietary interventions uh, can be successful if the individual uh, uh, stays on that dietary approach uh, uh, long term. Um, so whether you're talking about uh, very low calorie diets, uh, low carb diets, intermittent fasting, uh, uh, basically if the uh, 
person is willing to stay on that dietary intervention, uh, they can achieve uh, uh, success. So uh, again, uh, speaking with the patient and uh, choosing a program that they're uh, willing and able to stay on long-term uh, would be the appropriate intervention. Uh, one of the problems with the rather uh, extreme uh, dietary programs is that many individuals are unable to maintain uh, that approach uh, uh, in the long term. Uh, but the current uh, approach is to uh, uh, have the patient uh, help in the decision as to which diet may be most appropriate to their current uh, lifestyle, and uh, they need to be committed to uh, uh, long-term uh, dietary changes uh, in order to uh, uh, succeed. And so the actual type of diet is probably not the crucial aspect. It's the long-term adherence is probably the most important thing. Now on to my next question. To what degree should body weight influence the choice of anti-diabetic medication? So as you know, uh, about 80 to 90% of our patients with type 2 diabetes are either overweight uh, or obese, and so uh, when we're choosing an antihyperglycemic agent, if weight loss is uh, one of the main priorities, then clinicians should be choosing antihyperglycemic agents that are associated with weight loss. And uh, we're quite fortunate right now in that we have uh, uh, two classes of antihyperglycemic agents that uh, can lead to clinically significant weight loss. And that uh, includes the GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, and also the uh, uh, SGLT2 uh, inhibitors. Uh, fortunately, we can combine these two classes to get uh, uh, almost synergistic uh, weight loss. Um, if other agents are required, uh, we would certainly lean towards weight-neutral agents, uh, such as DPP-4 inhibitors. And although we sometimes have to use uh, agents that cause weight gain, uh, certainly sulfonylureas, uh, thiozolidine diodes, and insulin would be lower down in the treatment protocol uh, since they're associated with the uh, weight gain. So for my last question, metabolic surgery, including gastric bypass, is now recommended as a consideration for patients with a BMI above 30 kilograms per meter square. When should this option be discussed with patients and how would you recommend having this conversation? So metabolic or bariatric surgery is certainly increasing in use uh, for individuals with obesity, including those with uh, diabetes. Uh, typically, we would refer for bariatric surgery after uh, unsuccessful attempts uh, uh, after trying uh, healthy behavior interventions and perhaps uh, pharmacotherapy uh, for uh, obesity. Um, we do like the option of bariatric surgery uh, because it's uh, perhaps the best option for inducing a diabetes remission, and um, certainly uh, you get more dramatic weight loss than uh, lifestyle or pharmacotherapy interventions. And bariatric surgery has also been shown to reduce diabetes complications and mortality. Uh, so when having the conversation uh, around uh, uh, weight loss surgery with our patients, we would uh, uh, present these benefits to the patient, but of course have to uh, 
balance that about against potential risks. Uh, so there are rare operative risks. Uh, uh, there can be uh, nutritional deficiencies or dumping syndrome or hypoglycemia uh, after gastric uh, bypass surgery. And so uh, we would have this conversation uh, with the individual who's had unsuccessful weight loss attempts and uh, probably only recommend bariatric surgery if uh, the overall benefits uh, outweigh the risk, which is uh, often the situation in these obese individuals that have failed other attempts at weight loss. Thank you for your time, Dr. Goldenberg. We've come to the end of another session. To reiterate, a range of genetic and hormonal factors can contribute towards obesity, meaning that simply recommending increased activity and a healthy diet is insufficient to drive long-term, meaningful change. To achieve sustained weight loss in comorbid patients, clinicians should work together with patients to create an individualized treatment plan, which may include limited calorie diets, specific antihypoglycemic medication, or metabolic surgery depending on the person. If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps or stream individual episodes from our website. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at DKI Practice. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeinpractice.eu. Thank you for listening. And thank you for joining us. If you have any further questions for our experts, or if you want to share your own clinical experience, join the discussion online using the hashtag DKIPobesity on Twitter. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and we'll discuss key highlights in our next episode on fatty liver disease in diabetes.